Well, I'd like to invite you as you sit in your living rooms or wherever you might be this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew as we continue our series in this great New Testament book. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 21, and we're going to read chapter 21, verse 23, all the way through chapter 22 and verse 14 as we read these three parables that Jesus shares with the uh, chief priests and elders of the people as he finds himself in Jerusalem. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23, and then we'll read the entirety of the text together and uh, begin to study uh, after we've done so. So Matthew 21 and verse 23. So as you turn there to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23, you'll read these words along with me. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to his word. Lord, as we look now to your scriptures and seek to understand, we pray that you would also transform us into the image of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You'll know if you've uh, been around for some time that there is that phrase to indicate someone who is fast approaching their fate. There is that phrase that goes like this, dead man walking. You might say that phrase sort of jokingly. Uh, you can imagine students in a classroom as one is called out of the classroom into the principal's office. You can imagine the students looking at each other and saying, dead man walking. Or perhaps in the office that you work in or the factory that you work in, if one of your coworkers is called into the office by the boss with a less than gracious tone, uh, you might turn to the people around you and say, dead man walking. You, you, you mean to indicate in that moment that whoever it is, the student or the coworker, is, is about to, to have an unpleasant experience uh, as they uh, discuss things with their, their principal or their, their boss. But in a very literal way, uh, the, and the first time I ever heard this expression was, was used in this way in, in terms of a, a marketing for a movie that I've never, never seen, so can't really uh, endorse or, or, or tell you to avoid. But in a very literal way, uh, the, the phrase dead man walking might refer to someone who is uh, walking to their, their death, to be executed, to be uh, justly punished for a crime that they may have committed. And it's certainly in that sense, in that very literal sense, that we might imagine that in, in Jesus' day, as he moves into the city of Jerusalem, that those who were on the inside and, and had heard the things that Jesus had said himself uh, might turn to one another and say, dead man walking. Because if we take Jesus seriously, as we should, uh, we'll know that three times now in the gospel according to Matthew, he has predicted that in, in terms of his entry into Jerusalem, he is in effect a dead man walking. He says as uh, far back as chapter 16 and verse 21, uh, that he would be going to Jerusalem and there he would suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. 
He then predicts this fate two other times. The last time he does so, he says very plainly, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day, chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. It's no secret to those who've been following Jesus for some time that his entry into Jerusalem is an entry into the city in which he will be handed over to be crucified. And yet one of the things that's so fascinating, so encouraging about this Christ as he makes his way into Jerusalem, this dead man walking, is that he doesn't enter into the city with his head hung low. He doesn't enter into the city with at least any uh, outward expression of fear and trepidation, but rather with an extreme boldness, the kind of boldness that causes him to um, very intentionally enact a prophecy of scripture by riding into the city on the colt of a donkey, the kind of boldness that uh, motivated him to walk into the temple and to turn over the tables of those who were selling sacrificial animals, the kind of boldness that would cause him to receive the praise of, of those who were the outcasts of society and children within the temple and seek to silence the very men who he had already predicted would eventually put him to death. We find this Jesus, this dead man walking, entering into Jerusalem with a sense of authority, and that's certainly what the issue is this morning, the issue of authority. Uh, as Jesus tells these three parables, they are, if you'd like, stories of authority, and the authority that Jesus has as the king who rules over the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we get into the, the text it, itself, I want us to just observe together the context, the, the scenario, the situation in which Jesus is, is telling these parables or stories, because that's going to help us really come to grips with his emphasis and his purpose in, in telling these things. I mean, really, as a whole, uh, his message in terms of these three parables is that, that he has all authority. So we, we might say that the, the message here this morning is that Jesus has all authority, and so therefore, uh, a failure to honor him is to forfeit the kingdom. Jesus has all authority, so therefore, uh, a failure to honor him is to forfeit the kingdom. That's his message uh, as, he, as he shares these three parables. But again, by way of context, I want you to notice just as we begin to look at the text together, that the, the situation that gives rise to these parables is a conversation that Jesus has with the chief priests and the elders of the people, verse 23 of chapter 21. Now again, these are the men that Jesus has already predicted will be the ones who hand him over to the Gentiles so that he might be crucified. And, uh, and yet, we find Jesus not cowering in fear from them, but rather confronting them with claims of his authority as uh, the king of the kingdom. They approach Jesus, uh, understandably, after witnessing all that he's already done in his entry into Jerusalem, and they ask him the question, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, uh, it's very plain on the surface of things that they don't ask this question in good faith. There is a way in which you might ask Jesus, uh, where is your authority from, uh, in an eagerness to, to know about him and to follow him. But instead, this question is motivated largely by a desire to entrap Jesus and to trick him, uh, to get him to confess what they know that he will confess if he's speaking truth.
transparently that his authority is from God, that he's been sent by God, that his authority is heavenly, and, and then thereby they can, they can sort of wrongfully accuse him of blasphemy. But here's what happens when you try to outwit the all-wise. Uh, it tends to go poorly for you, and, and that's exactly what happens with these religious leaders who challenge Jesus, because Jesus turns their trick question into a trick question of his own. He's not being underhanded or ungodly here. He's just simply playing their game and beating them at it. And uh, he turns their question uh, back upon them and says, I'll tell you where my authority comes from if you'll tell me uh, where John's baptism came from. Is it from heaven or is it from man? Is John literally heaven sent or did he make up his message himself? And these religious leaders, duplicitous and hypocritical as they are, uh, try to play the crowds there for a moment as they huddle up and discuss what their answer will be. Of course, the crowd viewed John the Baptist, and we read about him all the way back in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. They viewed John the Baptist as a prophet. So to speak against John is to sort of uh, receive the ire of the crowds around them. But to confess that John's baptisms from heaven is, in essence, to, to answer their own question about Jesus' authority. Because if, we conf if they confess that John's uh, commission was heavenly, well, John pointed to Jesus and talked about Jesus being the, the one to whom he pointed. And so that underscores and underwrites and validates uh, all that Jesus is doing and, and, and answers very clearly where his authority comes from. But rather than answering the question, they simply plead the fifth. They say, we don't know. They, they plead ignorance. And so in light of that, Jesus shares these parables. And so I want you to see that all of these stories of authority that Jesus shares are, are spoken to uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the Pharisees, uh, Matthew will tell us at the end of chapter 21. But just as importantly, they're not only spoken to the Pharisees, they are spoken about uh, the, the, the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees. So this is Jesus and his authority really confronting the religious leaders of the day and confronting them on their self-righteousness and their dismissal of the authority that is in Jesus and, and their rejection, ultimately their forfeiture of, of the kingdom of heaven. And so there is a message here in these parables of Jesus for those of us who think somehow or another that our own righteousness will suffice to make us acceptable to God. That is not uh, the Christian message whatsoever, and that will be uh, clear as we make our way through these three stories. Now, for ease of uh, following along and understanding. Our outline this morning is just going to be the headings in the ESV Bible uh, as we look at each one of these parables. And so the first point that I want you to see, the first heading, if you, you'd like, if you're taking notes, is the parable of the two sons. Now, just to sort of um, summarize this, this parable, Jesus tells a story of a father who owns a vineyard. There's the vineyard again from last week, hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 5. He not only has a vineyard, but he has two sons. And he commands or calls upon both of those sons to go into the vineyard and, and to do some work for him. The first son, uh, right out of the gate, blatantly refuses to do what his father asks him to do and says, I will not. But later on, after he's thought about it, comes to his senses, literally he changed his mind or he repented and then ends up finding himself in the vineyard doing the work that his father had called him to. The second son, on the other hand, uh, says, initially, I go, sir, very respectful, kind, clean-cut sort of answer to the call to go and work in the vineyard, and yet doesn't go. 
he, he fails to be obedient to the Father's command. If you wanted to contemporize this, this parable, it might be like a man uh, with a large lawn and two sons, and he tells both of them, go out and, and do the, the lawn. One of you can mow, one of you can weed whack. One of them says, no way, uh, but at the end of the day, the lawn ends up being mowed. One of them says, sure, I'll do the work, but ultimately doesn't go, and there are long uh, blades of grass and weeds growing up around all the trees. It's very clear by the end of the day who did his father's will. And what's fascinating here about the way that Jesus tells this parable and about how he, he sort of hones in on the leaders who are confronting him about his authority is he says, in essence, to them, I want you to answer for yourselves which one of these sons has done his father's will, because by your own words, you will be condemned. I mean, the, the summary of the principle here at, at work in this parable of Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven is uh, open to those who repent, and yet it remains closed to those who refuse to repent. Again, in this text, the phrase is, change your mind. Um, that's a very uh, helpful, I think, definition of what it means to repent. It's to change your mind about your sin and your wandering away from God and to turn to him, uh, having a change of mind and heart and direction in obedience. It's not just words, I go, sir, but it's action. Uh, moving away from disobedience, I will not go, to obedience, doing the Father's will. Now, Jesus doesn't leave the Pharisees, or I keep saying Pharisees, but it's at this point that just the chief priests and the elders. He doesn't leave them to sort of interpret this parable on their own. In fact, he gives them the application. He, the real sting in the tail is what this has to do with them by way of their rejection of John the Baptist. Remember, they, they, would, they refused to say his baptism was heavenly. And, and here Jesus confronts them on their unbelief. Listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. I mean, imagine if Jesus were to say something like this today uh, in a group of sort of polite company. He would say something along the lines of, you know, the prostitutes and the drug dealers and, and, uh, and the terrorists are entering into the kingdom of heaven, while you, uh, pastors, priests, popes, remain outside. Now, that's a, a staggering and a surprising, even offensive kind of comment to make. But what's at issue here? At issue here is how one enters into the kingdom of heaven. See, these leaders thought largely that they could enter into the kingdom of heaven on the strength of their own perceived goodness. They were very skilled at saying, I go, sir. I obey you, sir. I'll follow your commandments. I'll obey. I'll even create more commandments, uh, additional commandments to obey in order to get extra credit if you'd like. And yet that is not the issue whatsoever when it comes to relating to the Lord and entering into the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven, as I said, is open to those who repent, who change their minds about their sin. The, the fact of the matter is, is that it doesn't matter if you're a prostitute or if you're a priest. Each and every one of us is born with a, a sin nature that causes us, even if it's not blatant and external, at least in our hearts, uh, to rebel against the just and good commandments of our God. And so because of that, uh, if, if we have any intention of being made right with him or being 
a member of his kingdom. It must be uh, by his grace. And see, John came in the way of righteousness, Jesus says, uh, pointing to Jesus and preaching repentance so that people would trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus. And friends, the, the point that I want to make to you this morning on the strength of this parable is that saving faith, real faith, is always repentant faith. It's not the faith that merely professes Christ. The faith that possesses Christ is a repentant faith, a faith that initially, at the point of conversion, changes its mind about its sin and begins to walk a path of obedience, but a faith that daily is changing its mind about sin and seeking to, to, to be forgiven and, and to walk in obedience by his grace. So what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders is that in your rejection of John the Baptist's authority and his heaven-sent commission, as he proclaimed the gospel, as he preached repentance and he pointed to me, in light of your rejection of his message of repentance and pointing to me, you are, you are not even entering the kingdom. Sort of the, the sort of riffraff of society that are responding to John are entering the kingdom, but you are not. This is a difficult message for religious people who are clean cut and who seek to live their lives morally and to be, quote, good people. But the message of Christianity is that there are no good people. There's only a good God. A good God who welcomes bad people, who change their mind, who repent, and who trust in his son. So Jesus is beating the Pharisees at their own game. In this parable of the two sons, he confronts their rejection about, uh, of John the Baptist. He confronts their lack of repentance. And in so doing, he's confronting their rejection of his authority. Because if they reject John, then they reject him as well. Now, in this second parable, the parable of the tenants, there is a ratcheting up of intensity. Because we're no longer talking about their rejection of John the Baptist, but in a very real sense, Jesus is speaking to their rejection of him. John the Baptist came and pointed to Jesus and therefore his authority. Jesus came as one in the long line of Old Testament prophets and, and even more than a prophet as the unique son of God and underscored his own authority. And yet he was rejected by these leaders as well. And that's borne out in the parable, the story of authority that Jesus tells here, the parable of the tenants. Here again, Jesus is speaking to and about the religious leaders of his day. And he says, here another parable. Let's go for a second round, if you boys are, are willing. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Now, what Jesus goes on to say here is very reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 5. And you'll remember that uh, from uh, a week or, or so ago, a couple weeks ago, that in Isaiah chapter 5, God pictures Israel as a vineyard. And he speaks of all of the blessings and the benefits that he, he gave them. And he had every right ex expectation that they would produce fruit, that they would live obedient and God-honoring lives, and yet they didn't. It wasn't his fault. He had provided everything for them. It was their fault in their rebellion and their sin. And there are overtones of all of that here in this parable of the tenants. He, he talks about this master of the house who plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it, digs a wine press, and builds a tower, and then leases it to tenants. That's a common practice in this uh, time period that a, a master of the house would hire out tenants to work his land as he went off to do other things. And, and so he, he does just that. And when the season for fruit comes, he begins to send his servants to go and collect uh, what, he's, what he's due. He has every right expectation that they'll provide some fruit for him. But you, you can see that the response that they have to his servants is absolutely outrageous. Uh, they, they become violent towards the servants who come uh, expecting fruit for their master. 
And, and it goes from bad to worse. Because eventually, as we continue to read in the story, this master of the house says to himself, self, um, maybe I'll send my son. They will respect, that's the word, verse uh, 37, they will respect my son. They will honor his authority. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I can remember working uh, in other uh, careers and, and having other sorts of jobs, whether it was retail or, or a government job or whatever it might be. But you'll know that from time to time, sort of the, the owner of the company or perhaps like a, a district or a regional manager comes uh, to your office to, to see how things are going. And you know on those occasions that it, it's time to put your best foot forward uh, to be sure that you're at work on time and, and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, can you imagine how outrageous it would be for everybody on that day when the district manager is, is going to, to visit? Uh, comes not dressed according to the dress code. They come late. They they, you know, they're not doing their work, they're, they're making personal phone calls during the... That would be absolutely outrageous. But think about how absolutely astounding it is that when the son who comes with the father's authority, comes on behalf of the father, when he comes, rather than honoring the son and reverencing the son, they plot to kill him. It doesn't take much thought to understand what Jesus here is saying. What he's saying here is that the servants that precede the son are the Old Testament prophets who come preaching repentance to Israel. Come back to your covenant God. Repent, believe, receive his grace, and yet they reject the prophets. And then finally, Jesus comes as the prophet to end all prophets, to come and require fruit from his people. But rather than honoring him and reverencing him, these leaders are plotting to kill him. How absolutely outrageous. And yet again, here Jesus, as he tells this story of authority, this parable of the tenants, he presses upon the leaders to come to the conclusion themselves, to provide the climax of the story himself, themselves. What will the master of the house do when he returns after having found out that these tenants have killed his son? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They condemn themselves with their words. See, Jesus continues by explaining that he is the cornerstone by quoting from Isaiah, or, uh, Psalms, rather, Psalm 118. And there in Psalm 118, the cornerstone is Israel, rejected by the nations but honored by the Lord, the cornerstone. And this is marvelous in our eyes. And here Jesus now is the true Israel, is the cornerstone, the foundation. When the temple is gone, Jesus will be the stone, the foundation of this new people, Jew and Gentile alike, who produce fruits of repentance by faith in him. Jesus is that cornerstone. And as he looks at these religious leaders, he's saying to them, you are rejecting me. You as the builders are rejecting me, but the Lord is making me the cornerstone, the foundation and this is marvelous in the eyes of God's people. See, what I have discovered is not only are religious people averse to repentance, parable of the two sons, religious people are averse to any discussion of Jesus and his supremacy and centrality and glory. Certainly the case for these religious leaders. And so Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Not only are you not going to enter it, you're entering it after the tax collectors and prostitutes. It's going to be taken away from you and you will be replaced, Jesus says. 
given to a people producing its fruits. And one who falls on this stone, this cornerstone, will be broken. Be careful you don't trip over Jesus. He will shatter you to pieces. And if this cornerstone falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, again, at issue is this authority of Jesus. John points to the authority of Jesus. Jesus comes with the authority of the Father. He is the foundation, the capstone. He is the issue. So it does not matter here the ethnicity of these religious leaders or the pedigree of this, these religious leaders or the perceived righteousness of these religious leaders. The fact is, is that they did not produce the fruit that is born by faith in the promises of God culminating in his son Jesus. And so therefore they're out. And there's a, a new people who are coming in. People who look to Jesus, turning from their sin, believing in him and producing the fruits that God requires. Now, to the chief priests and the Pharisees now who finally do enter the story in verse 45, it's no secret that he's talking about them, not only to them, but about them, and they want to arrest him. And yet their fear of the people that they are ostensibly leading, their, you know, the fact that they're easily influenced by the people that they're ostensibly leading, leads them to do nothing. Except for here, the third and final parable that Jesus has to tell to them. And that is the parable of the wedding feast. Now, if there was a ratcheting up of intensity between parable one and two, that's certainly the case now. Because not only are they not entering the kingdom, parable number one, not only are they uh, having the kingdom taken away from them, parable number two, now they are going to be judged and thrown out of the kingdom eternally, parable number three. Not only that, they have rejected the authoritative voice of John the Baptist, which points to the authority of Jesus. Not only have they rejected the ministry of Jesus who came with the authority of the Father, now they reject the voice of the Father himself as he honors the Son and calls everyone everywhere also to honor his Son by repenting and trusting in him. This third parable begins as a comparison to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven might be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. That's not difficult for us to imagine. A proud father, a kingly father giving a wedding feast for his newly married son. What's a little bit different for us is that very often the initial invite would go out and then on the day of the wedding feast, the, the servants of the king would go out and call everyone to actually come in everyone who had been invited to come in. There's sort of a double kind of invitation uh, thing happening here. And, and that's what we, we read about here in this passage. At the time for the wedding feast, the king sends his servants out to go and call all who are invited, saying, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. Now, in the same way that the vineyard is, um, gives us images of, of Israel, the wedding feast would give most people who are hearing this originally, uh, an image of uh, the end of, of all things, the, the time when God consummates his kingdom. And we, we understand that there's a wedding feast of the Lamb when Jesus returns in glory. And so here we're, we're sort of fast forwarding to the end of all things when this wedding feast is finally happening, when, when God and his people are fully and finally reconciled and dwell together forever. And as the servants go out to the 
main streets and call all the people who have been invited, there is nothing but apathy and excuses and violence in response. We're meant to understand this in large part as the sort of elite uh, of, 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 of Jewish religion rejecting this call to the wedding feast. So as time goes on, the, the king in his fury burns down the city of those who will not come and calls upon his servants not to go to Wall Street, but to go to Main Street and to invite as many as you find. You'll see that there in verse 9. They go out into the roads, they find all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. It says, if you will not come, these will come. The kingdom is being taken away from you and given to those who will produce its fruits. But the real sting in the tale of this story Jesus tells comes in the second paragraph there in the parable. Because the king finds a wedding hall that's filled with guests, and yet he finds someone who is woefully underdressed. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. This is a wedding and a funeral. Make no mistake, this is condemnation. This is being cast out of the kingdom. This is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I can remember having read this passage early in my Christian life and even hearing people preach on this passage and, and being very fearful about uh, this wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? And am I certain that I own one and that I'll be wearing one uh, when this wedding feast takes place? Now, it's really difficult because Jesus doesn't give us the exact answer to what this wedding garment is, but I think we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture and understand in light of all that Jesus has been talking about just in this passage that this wedding garment is, is the result of a repentant and persevering faith in Jesus Christ, whereby he clothes us with his own righteousness. Not a righteousness that is our own, but a righteousness that is Christ's, earned by him and gifted to those who trust in him. You know, it, this reminded me this week of um, my golfing career, which is uh, not very storied and uh, didn't last very long. I don't particularly like golf, uh, only because I don't have the time to commit to play well. Um, if you like to golf, uh, I'm very happy for you. I, I think it's really relaxing and, and the times I've golfed, it's fun. But uh, I used to golf just once once a year. Uh, so you can imagine how skilled I am. But once a year and uh, I guess sort of the blessing and the curse is uh, that that once a year golf outing that I, I took part of was at a very, very wealthy country club uh, in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And I always sort of felt uh, lesser than when I would show up to golf uh, at, at this country club, only because I, I didn't have the nicest clubs, didn't have a nice bag, I didn't own golf shoes, I just sort of you know, tried to cobble together some sort of acceptable outfit to go golfing. Uh, and one of the years in particular always stands out to me because of something that happened uh, after we played the first nine. So we went out and, and played the first nine holes, and at the turn, you know, you'll, you'll walk past the, 
um, the clubhouse and the locker room and, and, and all of that stuff. And as we were making the turn, we were right by the, the men's locker room. This is the kind of place where uh, when you, you go out to golf, they polish your dress shoes. And when you take a shower after golfing to change into your dress shoes for dinner, they polish your golf shoes. And it's a very nice, uh, nice place. And uh, I had played the first nine holes in, in tennis shoes, just in, you know, just like Nikes because I didn't own golf shoes. And as we made the turn, the, the man who sort of worked in the, the locker room, he, he came out and he approached me and he said, why aren't you wearing golf shoes? And it sort of took me by surprise and I was, you know, brought to the fore all of my feelings of insecurity and, and feeling lesser than. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I just, I don't own, I don't own golf shoes. And uh, he made the comment that you, you actually cannot, it is unacceptable for you to golf on this golf course and not wear golf shoes. And then, and I sort of felt really humbled and embarrassed. But then he said to me, if you had only asked me, I would have given you a pair. And so he went back into the locker room and he came out and he brought me a pair of golf shoes and he gave them to me and he, he polished my Nikes. But the point is, is that what Jesus is getting at as he, as he tells this parable, very often kings would provide their guests with wedding garments as they came to wedding feasts. And here as the, the king looks at everybody in this this feast. He, he notices someone who's come, like I went to the golf course at my Nikes, thinking, well, this is, this is acceptable. This is, this is the best I have to offer, and it's, and it's good enough. But the king, as a matter of fact, says, no, it's not good enough. The only thing that's good enough is the wedding garment that I will give you. You cannot come here dressed in what you think is best. And remember who Jesus is speaking to, these chief priests and Pharisees and elders of the people who pride themselves on their own perceived righteousness and goodness, their own morality. Jesus says, if you come into this wedding feast dressed in what you're currently wearing, and if you think that that's going to make you acceptable to the king, understand you. You are the dead man walking. And this is the way that most of us think about religion and spirituality. That if there is a God, and he's good, as Alistair Begg used to always say, then he is grading on a curve and he will reward nice people for trying their best. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Again, I say to you, it doesn't matter if you are a prostitute or a priest. Each and every one of us is in need of the forgiveness of sins. It seems to me that very often we spend more time teaching our children and teaching ourselves morality than we do repentance and faith. And that can be, it can be a detriment to knowing Jesus and following him. Certainly we want to honor the Lord and, and, and be obedient to him. But even as we do that, we do so with an understanding that we are broken and sinful and unacceptable. And that the only thing that will ever make us acceptable to the king, to the father, is, is, is the righteousness of his son gifted to us by grace through faith. See, the Pharisees asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? He says, well, John the Baptist pointed to my authority. I came and proclaimed my authority as I was sent from the father. And the father one day will vindicate and validate my authority by casting out of the wedding feast any and all who do not honor me. And friends, we honor him by confessing our sins 
and by turning from them and trusting in Jesus alone to be the one who saves us and makes us eternally acceptable to the Father. My prayer this morning is that as we read these parables, we read them in context, we understand who Jesus is speaking to and why. That Some of us might say, you know, I'm beginning to realize that much of my spiritual life has been built upon a foundation of my own good works. And if that's the case, then I am, in fact, a dead man or a dead woman walking. It could never be good enough. So how do I honor the Son so as not to forfeit the kingdom? The way I do that is by looking to the dead man walking, the man who went into Jerusalem, the man of perfect righteousness and supreme authority, who never sinned and who lived a perfect and righteous life in my place, and who died on the cross, as the great hymn said, in my place condemned he stood, dying not for his own sin, but for yours. And who rose again three days later to show that God accepted all of the work of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, the resurrection of Jesus, God the Father saying, Jesus, you are acceptable in my sight. And all of us who look away from ourselves and to him, well, the exact opposite of this, this passage is true for us because in honoring the Son, we inherit the kingdom. I pray that you'll do that this morning. As Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. There's no, no need to bother with the theology right now of, of, of God's choosing. God does choose. He chooses his people. He has since the nation of Israel. He does now in the church. But we show our having been chosen by our faithful response to this gospel offering. If you had only asked, I would give you a wedding garment. Friends, turn away from your own righteousness. It's, it's silly. It's fake. It's not good enough. But in Jesus, you will find all that you need. This authoritative king who rules over the kingdom of heaven, consisting of disciples of all nations who obey all that he has commanded. We do so by faith. Pray that you'll find yourself doing that this morning. Go in his grace.